This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg, and welcome to episode 40 of Inside COVID-19. In this episode, ANC Top 6 member Paul Mashatile tells Chatham House that South Africa's post-pandemic economic strategy is actually an updated version of the Reconstruction and Development Plan of the 1990s. Discovery's Chief Actuary unpacks the relevance of South Africa's COVID-19 reproduction, or R rate, which is currently running at around one5 We'll investigate the quest to find a rapid and cheap coronavirus test and have a look at the way that Boeing and Airbus expect to make it safe to fly. In other words, get on a plane without catching the virus. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. First, in the COVID-19 headlines today, with mortalities having peaked in Europe and the USA, the hotspots are now shifting elsewhere. Deaths are rising rapidly in Brazil, Mexico, India and Russia, and South America is rapidly becoming the worst impacted region. Globally, the number of confirmed cases are now at almost five and three quarter million people, with deaths at 355,000, or about 6% of the caseload. Belgium remains the hardest hit nation per capita, with 82 deaths there per 100,000 population, with Spain, the UK and Italy in the 50s, and France and Sweden in the 40s. In South Africa, deaths from the virus have risen above 500 after 43 more were recorded on Tuesday. That's the second highest so far after Monday's 52. The mortality rate here is 2.2% of the total cases reported to date, and those are sitting at 24,264. Some good news of a kind anyway for South Africa from the epidemiologists and statisticians whose forecasts of COVID-19 infections and mortalities have been among the world's most accurate thus far. Projections made on the website covid19-projections.com estimate that South Africa will have just over 18,000 mortalities by the 1st of September when the virus's impact is expected to be near its peak. This projection is well below initial forecasts of at least 80,000 deaths and with the virus expected to be a factor for at least the rest of the year, it looks like total deaths to COVID-19 are going to be in line with the South African government advisor's recent forecast of between 40,000 and 45,000. More on the projections coming up with Discovery's Chief Actuary, Emil Stipp. Google's Community Mobility Reports, which monitor changes in the way people have been moving around as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic and particularly the lockdowns, shows that after heavy compliance initially, South Africans have been shrugging off the government's stay-at-home directive. Google's analysis of South Africa, which tracks data up to mid-May, shows a significant increase in recent weeks. 
Visits to shopping centres, which had dropped to less than 80% of normal in early April, had risen to only half the usual traffic by mid-May. Visits to retail stores, which were down by two-thirds in the early stage of the lockdown, had adjusted to just 22% below normal by the time that Google did its analysis. Two of the ANC's senior office bearers, Treasurer General Paul Mashatile and the chair of the Economic Transformation Committee, Enoch Gogondwana, participated in a webinar organized by Chatham House in London on South Africa's recovery beyond COVID-19. Mr. Mashatile said it was expected that 1.8 million South Africans would lose their jobs due to the coronavirus pandemic. And he said the ANC did not have a new plan to deal with economic recovery beyond COVID-19. They are planning to sharpen present policies, which included an emphasis on the reconstruction and development plan of the 90s with the expansion of infrastructure, strengthening local manufacturing, improving the skills of workers, mineral beneficiation and a greener economy. Mr. Godongwana spoke about land expropriation and the two speakers also touched on the negotiations with the unions on public service wages. It is impacting on our regions, particularly the three largest economies of Nigeria, South Africa and Angola, in a context of persistently weak growth and investment, as well as declining commodity prices. With limited public resources and overstretched health systems, Africa faces a particularly daunting task in mitigating the effects of the pandemic. The World Bank projects that growth in sub-Saharan Africa will decline from 2.4% in 2019 to between a negative 2.1% and negative 5.1% this year in 2020. It is further projected that in this year, the pandemic will cost African countries between 37 to 79 billion US dollars in terms of output losses. South Africa's GDP is expected also to contract by 6.4% in 2020 with more than 1.8 million potential job losses. It is estimated that Africa will require more than 100 billion US dollars to adequately respond to healthcare and social safety needs as a result of this pandemic. The, the South African government has acted swiftly, boldly and decisively to put measures to cap the spread of the virus and to cushion its economic impact on the poor and the vulnerable. It is however clear that given the scale of the damage to our economy, the post-COVID-19 reconstruction effort will be no mean feat. The COVID-19 pandemic has highlighted that apartheid fault lines are still persistent in our economy and society. Poverty, unemployment and inequality of income, wealth and opportunity based on race, gender and geographical location have once more asserted themselves as our country battles with COVID-19. The poor and the vulnerable are the hardest hit 
by the pandemic. They also bear the brand of most of the measures put in place to cap the spread of the virus. We have taken the view that in building a post-COVID-19 economy, we need to go back to the fundamental insights contained in the reconstruction and development program, what we call the RDP of the early 1990s. The RDP envisaged building a new economy by, among others, implementing effective programs to address the basic needs of our people. Guided by the RDP, we are of the view that through urban expansion and renewal, as well as the provision of infrastructure and services, particularly to historically excluded communities in rural and urban areas, conditions would be created to repair the broken structure of the South African economy by stimulating broad-based growth and job creation to reduce inequality, poverty, and unemployment, particularly amongst young people. We are also determined to ensure that the goals of the National Development Plan, Vision 2030, to reduce inequality, poverty, and unemployment, find practical expression in the new economy that we are building. Of importance to us is the need to sharpen the implementation of our policies and programs. Some of the key elements of our plan for post-COVID-19 South African economy will include the following. Massive expansion of social and economic infrastructure to meet basic needs. Investments to improve the performance of our network industries as part of implementing structural reforms. Strengthening local manufacturing and local content whilst at the same time enabling participation of South African firms in continental and global value chains. Strengthening trade and investment linkages with other countries, particularly on the African continent, but also in the world. Mounting a skills revolution to build the right know-how required for jobs, industries, and the economy of the future. Greater focus will also be on mineral beneficiation, the green economy, and green industrialization. Empowering small businesses, cooperatives, and informal enterprises, and also promoting the objectives of broad-based black economic empowerment to ensure inclusion and redress. Program director, to find our intervention during and after the pandemic, we will continue with efforts already underway to stabilize our public finances and reprioritize government spending. We will also mobilize local private sector funding and technical expertise. Government is already in discussion with international players such as the IMF, the World Bank, the New Development Bank and the African Development Bank to raise in excess of 27 billion US dollars as part of our immediate health response to COVID-19 pandemic. Let me start with the land reform question. The land reform has become at the center of 
this post-COVID uh, uh, reconstruction. If you want to build houses, we need land. If you want to make more impressive on the rural parts of our country, you need land. So land reform is going to be central in on whatever we do. There are two processes that are three, three pillars of land reform at the moment. The first one is land tenure, is to make sure that those who have got no tenure but they occupy land, they can provide tenure. The second thing is restitution. That process is going on. We want to emphasize on redistribution. Redistribution makes so that we can make available whatever state land that's available at the moment. That process is in place. Land has been identified which is state land, and where appropriate, we will get more land. We are not going to wait for changes in the constitution before we can start with the redistribution program. The redistribution program was proven since 1994. We've got to continue with, with it, and it's quite critical at the moment. I mean, one of the questions posed was a political question in relation to whether is there consensus, what somebody called the, uh, the alliance part, the ANC parts, we call them the alliance partners. Today, a document will be released which has been part of work of trying to find consensus among the alliance partners over the past two months, three months. So there has been some work done in order to achieve consensus on that. Even the call for a reconstruction post-coronavirus reconstruction is a consensus position amongst the alliance partners. It's so critical. There's a debate, I think, global as to what is going to be the new normal. Whichever way you look at it, that new normal will have a greater digital component in it, where there is new forms of work or everything of that sort. So it's going to also be a central part of the discussion. On the public sector wage agreements, uh, the discussions are still going on. Just a, f- a few days ago, the top six of the ANC and uh, the the alliance leadership, COSATU and the SACP, uh, met and, and re-looked at this issue. And we have agreed that uh, the way the engagements are taking place, led by the Minister of Public Administration, are being handled properly. Let's give that space uh, to see how we can resolve that, particularly given that we have this new environment of COVID-19 where resources have been heavily depleted. But those engagements are continuing, and I'm sure in the very near future we will know how to to conclude them. Inside COVID-19 from News. Emil Stipp is the Chief Actuary at Discovery. Emil, in other parts of the world, many people focus their attention on the reproduction rate or the R rate. Here in South Africa, we haven't quite got onto it yet. What exactly does it mean and what does it tell us? Sure. Hi, Alex. So the, so the R rate is a, is a central con, uh, uh, sort of parameter that one uses in, pro, in projecting the impact of an epidemic. And it's actually quite a simple concept. It, it says for every person that gets infected with coronavirus, how many other people will they uh, infect whilst they are contagious? 
So, say for argument's sake, over the three weeks that, that you are contagious, um, how many other people will get it from you? So if the R0 is one, it means that you will infect one other person. If it's five, then it means you'll infect five people. So what it measures in, in quite a powerful way is just how, how quickly an epidemic grows. Uh, the higher it is, the worse it is. Some of the most reliable data that I've seen is published by Imperial College, and they're updated every week. Before lockdown, what happened in South Africa, and actually in the UK and in almost all other countries in the world, is that coronavirus was imported into the country. So this wasn't one person infecting others. It came through from multiple people coming into the country. So if you look at the R0 at the very early stages, it tends to be high. So in the UK, it was close to four um, in South Africa, it was about five. That was for a short period of time. Then the country went into lockdown, and it came right down. So it came down to about one. Um, in the UK, for instance, it came down to 0.66. So it all depends on how effective the, the lockdown is. And now as we're emerging from lockdown again, it increases again. The aim would be to keep it at one, because the more you can keep it at one, the more stable the epidemic is, or to bring it down to below one. So if every one person that gets sick, they infect less than one other person, then it means that it's shrinking in the population. One of the shortcomings of looking at it at a particular point in time is that it does tend to be quite volatile. So when you look at the data in one week, it might appear high. The next week, it might appear a little bit lower and the other way around. So one needs to look at it maybe over a few weeks to get a proper sense of what's happening uh, in a country. So where are we at the moment in South Africa? So, so from what we can tell, um, and maybe there's just one other caveat to, to mention, that there's two ways to derive, or there are two ways to derive the R0. The one is that you can look at the number of reported cases. That gives you a sense of how quickly it's growing. The other is to look at the number of deaths and to work back from, from there. Now, the problem with looking at reported cases is that it depends on testing. So if there's a lot of testing available, you might get the wrong idea of R0. Um, with deaths, it probably is a bit more reliable. Um, but, you know, with deaths, there's also quite a lot of uncertainty then with the lag as to how long it takes from infection to death that, that one has to adjust for. Um, having said that, what we typically do is we look at the number of deaths and how that's growing. And where we are in South Africa at the moment um, is around about the 1.5 level. Um, and in the last week, it's been a bit higher than that. I don't think that that's the highest in the world. Um, to be honest, that I think I haven't looked at all the Imperial College data in the last week, but I would imagine in places like Brazil, it probably is higher. But there again, the data isn't that great. So we're not sure if deaths are underreported there, but certainly just by the looks of things, how the disease is spreading there, um, it probably is higher. So, so I think South Africa is certainly higher than, than one would have hoped right at the moment. Um, however, it was lower last week, the week before then it was a little bit higher. I think it's a bit early to say exactly what we're observing in the data. But I think the general comment is true, that if you, if you look at it over a number of weeks, the aim would be to keep it as low as possible. So when will we get an understanding, if we're following these Imperial College R or reproduction rate numbers, when is it going to start coming back to us that we might be getting on top of this? Um, again, it's, it, it is unfortunately hard to answer. I think 
When we spoke previously, I made the point that South Africa hasn't really seen an epidemic yet. If you look at where we are currently still, it's still a low number of infections, still a relatively low number of deaths. So I think, uh, you know, I did a calculation last week where just because I'm based in London, I'm also looking at the, the numbers in the UK versus South Africa. If we were at the same point of the infection in South Africa as we are in the UK, we would have had close to 11,000 deaths in South Africa at this point. So the epidemic is at different stages. So so that's the first thing. One has to, to bear in mind just where you are in the epidemic, and South Africa is lagging behind the UK, Europe, and the United States. Having said that, what we're seeing at the moment certainly is a higher R0 than I think we see in Europe. Um, and I think part of that is attributable just to the fact that lockdown here is still being enforced in quite a big way. Um, and also that, you know, society finds it easier to accommodate this. So it's easier for people, for instance, to isolate at home. Uh, there's a lot of people not yet going to the office in the UK, for instance. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of people still basically isolating. Um, I think it will go up because people are starting to relax more, and that's to be expected. The question just is when that happens, what sort of additional measures would the government take? Uh, what would they, you know, what would they say the new guidance would be? I don't think that one can expect a full lockdown again in almost any country in the world. Um, so it will now, from this point onwards, it's all a matter of being alive to the data, reacting to it, but also trying to manage the risk in a sort of sustainable and practical way. And that's, that's probably going to be the key. How do you do that when you have an R rate of, as you said, uh, where South Africa is around 1.5? So, so, so maybe one other point of context that I, that I failed to mention earlier. Um, what they estimate, and it's very difficult to, to get an accurate number on this, but what they estimate the natural R rate of coronavirus to be is close to three. So if you didn't do anything, if government just left it, that would be the rate at which it reproduces because it is so contagious. Um, some other diseases actually have a much higher R rate. So measles, for instance, in, in its natural state, I've seen estimates that that could be as close, close to nine, for argument's sake. Um, but obviously it has a different impact clinically and it, it leads to different symptoms and different sort of mortality. But for the estimate for coronavirus is three. So the fact that it's at one and a half basically means that it's already halved relative to what it would otherwise have been. Um, but even so, what you want is for it to be as close as possible to zero or even below, not zero, one or below or below one, because then it means that either the number of infections is just remaining stable or it's actually shrinking. Unfortunately, I don't think we're there in South Africa or in Europe, because we have, even in, in Europe, even in the, United, in the United Kingdom as we speak, this was confirmed by quite a good study with antibody tests last week. We have only about 6% of people infected, which means that there's still close to 94% of people that are vulnerable to infection. So it will continue to go through the population, continue to spread. It's the rate at which it's spread, which the R0 measures, and that one needs to keep down. Wow. So it's still got a long way to go. Yeah. I think until there's a vaccine, basically the message is that we all, we all have to do our bit to, to try and control this. 
So if you think about, uh, you know, I think we discussed this last time as well, the risk is actually very different for different people. So if you are older, for argument's sake, your risk is much higher. If you are a man, your risk is much higher than if you're a woman. Um, if you have chronic disease, particularly diabetes, your risk is much higher. So I think what will probably most logically happen in, in many places in the world is that they say for people that are vulnerable to compl- complications, that they should isolate, they should ensure that they don't get, um, you know, come into contact with people who have the disease. Um, and the best tool to manage that is contact tracing. So I spoke to a mining group this morning. I was very encouraged with what they're doing on their mines by implementing basically contact tracing already, trying to see how it develops within the, within the work, workforce and then isolating people that they pick up have been in contact with uh, COVID positive um, people just in the community in general. So I think that's, that's probably the tools that have turned out to be most useful. Isolation of vulnerable groups and also contact tracing and isolation to the extent that one can within a community. I guess the, the obvious question here is that in certain parts of South Africa, there has been very little social distancing. You see the pictures from Peter Maritzburg, uh, um, they've all done, done the round from people who were there and were horrified about it. The ability to do contact tracing in that kind of environment would seem to be rather limited. Yeah, the, I think that, I mean, it's maybe different if one, if one sees it from a bit of distance. There were similar pictures about the beach at Bournemouth this weekend. It was a long weekend in the UK. The sun was shining. Of course, when the sun shines, the whole of the UK takes off their shirts. It happens only twice a year. But everybody was outside and you had all these paper, all these photographs in the paper about, you know, crowds of people on beaches, etc. I think that, you know, it is very hard for people to understand when the disease is invisible, they don't feel sick, that actually there is a risk. Um, and I think that that sort of consciousness would probably change over time as well as this develops. Um, but I think you certainly do get it here. You also get it in the United States and in South Africa that there are, there are people that just don't appreciate what the risks are. And hence they, you know, they just go on as normal. Um, and I think it's dangerous. So, so the more we communicate about it, the more people understand basically what's, uh, what the risks are to themselves and their families. Um, maybe the more effective these messages become. But it's, it's just, it's very important for everybody to try and maintain social distancing. Uh, in my view, wear masks when they're going out into public, particularly crowded areas and avoid crowded areas whenever they can. Avoid public transport if that's possible. Work from home if that's possible. All those sort of things remain in force because we don't yet have vaccine. And that means that everybody who hasn't had COVID-19 is still vulnerable to infection. With South Africans going back to work from Monday, the 1st of June, are we likely then to see the R rate accelerate? Uh, to the extent that they do go back to work in, in larger numbers. Um, so it is quite quite interesting. What we're finding in our own offices is that actually a lot of people are still saying, you know, I'm working from home in any event. I'm, I'd, I'd rather continue to do that. The decision we've taken is to allow people to do that. So we're certainly not forcing every, anybody to come back to the office. 
Um, it is difficult in some divisions and in, in some areas you have to have people in call centers. That that already has been accommodated and we've sort of worked around the practical issues there. And I think every business would have to make those decisions from, for themselves. But I'd be surprised if the fact that you can go back to work means that everybody necessarily does. Um, because I think a lot of people will still be quite worried about the risk. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. In the fight against the coronavirus, scientists say that widespread testing is the secret to finding cases of COVID-19 so that the cases can be isolated and the people that they have been in contact with can be traced. But there are delays between the test that is normally done in central laboratories, which means people that have the virus can infect more people before they are tracked down. This has prompted scientists to look at a rapid test that can be done in a doctor's surgery or even a pharmacy. There are many labs working on a rapid cheap test. Wall Street Journal reporter Brianna Abbott explains to host Anne-Marie Fatoli the challenges they face. We use this test called a polymerase chain reaction, or PCR, and that's sort of considered the gold standard for diagnostic testing. You collect a sample either with one of those swabs that poke the back of your nose or they're starting to do less, less invasive collection, ships off to a lab. It runs in sort of these, these pretty decent-sized instruments. They can run a decent number of samples at once, and then it gets shipped back. And those tests are really sensitive and reliable, but as you can imagine, it, it takes a little while to process. And especially w- one of the issues with that is, you know, if you want to, you're in a healthcare setting or you're even at home, you want to be able to figure out the results quickly. Especially if you're, if you're in a medical triage situation, you need to figure out if the person has COVID or if they have the flu. Like you're going to want a test that gives you results in five to 10 minutes instead of five to 10 hours. What are the biggest challenges right now to developing rapid testing? So some of the challenges sort of include just just developing the test, which takes a bit longer than developing a PCR test. And, you know, another challenge is finding non-invasive ways to collect the patient sample while maintaining sensitivity, because you can't really have a collection test that uses those long swabs because you can't really do that without a medically trained professional. So that's a challenge. And another one is just sort of scale because there are a lot of companies with a lot of great ideas. But, you know, from getting from the prototype to producing millions of tests, that's that's sort of a logistical hurdle that you need to get through as well. So all of those are sort of challenges right now. So this has been described as something like Shark Tank, where different teams are competing for federal funding. Can you explain that? Yes. There was a Senate hearing on May 7th that actually used the term Shark Tank for COVID-19 testing as, as the title of the, <laughs> of the Senate hearing. So it's definitely sort of a way that people like to think of this, this challenge that was started at the National Institutes of Health. And sort of what they're doing is they want companies to submit, you know, their, their prototype ideas. So it's not just an idea on paper. They sort of might have a prototype already or have something in a lab that's a quick either point of care or rapid test. And sort of what they're going to do is they're going to pick the best ones and provide them with funds as well as technical business and manufacturing expertise so that they can go from those good ideas to manufacturing like at a high scale. And the goal is to get millions of tests per week by the end of the summer and even more by flu season. 
So how costly would something like this be? You mentioned earlier pregnancy tests. Those aren't exactly inexpensive, especially if you're going to be scaling testing up where this is done multiple times. Right. So so the goal with this is to also make the testing cheap because, you know, you have to be able to have if the point is decentralizing, it needs to be at a place where people can afford to buy it. And so I think the goal, some of the some of the antigen tests, which sort of look for viral proteins, I think they're hoping that they can be around like a cheap ten dollar test that you can buy. But um, I think it's it's too early to say for for a lot of these tests, just because they're still in the development phase and not necessarily at a place where they're ready to hit the market. You mentioned a couple of different segments of the population where this could be used. What is the target audience or target consumer here? So target audience ranges from, you know, employers to hospitals to you and me. And it sort of depends how we how we want to use them, though. I will say that they're a lot better for quick situations where there isn't necessarily a lab nearby and you sort of need immediate results. But if you're an employer that's trying to screen thousands of employees, this might not be the best case only because they can only run one or a handful of samples at a time. Whereas the tests that we're using now can run, they have a lot higher throughput and can test many more samples at once. So it really depends on if you want speed or if you want bulk in testing. You know, Brianna, even with the testing we have right now, we do hear different reports about the effectiveness of one test over the other, for example. I'm assuming that's going to be a big challenge for rapid testing as well. Sure. And so with with rapid testing, it's sort of a rule of thumb in the diagnostics industry that if the test is quicker and sort of easier to use, it's likely going to be less sensitive than sort of the, the lab-based test. And so that's something that diagnostic industry and sort of health health employees are sort of planning for that there's this trade-off sort of between speed and sensitivity though that's not necessarily the worst thing if you know you know the sensitivity of the test and you know the error rate and you can sort of deploy it with with the right strategy can sort of make up for that and some technologies like CRISPR, which is sort of the gene editing technology that some groups are looking at, might be able to sort of bridge this gap between speed and sensitivity. But that is definitely a major challenge with the with rapid testing. And what about the fall timeline to turn something like this over? That seems like a big challenge in and of itself. It definitely is. Dr. Francis Collins, who's the head of the NIH at a May 7th Senate hearing, said that the proposed target was was a stretch goal that sort of goes beyond what most experts think will be possible. Though I have also talked to a few other sources, including um, one of the people who's spearheading the, the testing initiative, that, that it can be done and that the challenges are daunting. But overall, you know, people people are optimistic. Airlines in South Africa have been struggling before the outbreak of the coronavirus pandemic, with SAA placed under business administration, and in early May, Comair, the British Airways franchise operator in South Africa, has also filed for business rescue. The coronavirus outbreak has led to several problems at other airlines in the world, with Virgin Air asking for British government help. Today, the aviation industry in South Africa have called on the government to provide specific financial relief to the aviation sector to address the severe impact of the COVID-19 crisis. The industry says 252,000 jobs are at risk as revenue generated by the airlines in the South African market will fall by 55 billion rand. 
But will passengers feel safe to board planes again if the airlines can keep on flying? The Wall Street Journal's Andrew Tangle explains to host Anne-Marie Fatoli on how Boeing and Airbus are involved in studies to determine how viruses spread on aircrafts. Both of those plane makers are starting to look at how the coronavirus behaves inside an aircraft. They're trying to understand the risks, any unknown risks, and figure out a way to further combat it in the air. Both talk about their air filtration systems that they have on board and have touted the quality of the air that's brought in. It's changed over frequently, it's brought in fresh from the outside, and then some of it is filtered through powerful uh, filters that you might see similar kinds of in a hospital setting and so forth. But they're looking to see how this particular virus behaves on airplanes in the air and on surfaces, and they're overall trying to get a better handle on how to keep it from spreading. Andrew, what do we know so far about how this virus spreads on airplanes? The CDC right now says that the primary mode of transmission is via droplets excreted through coughing, sneezing, or talking within close range of about six feet between people. They recently provided guidance saying that transmission through surfaces is believed to be possible, but not necessarily a primary mode of transmission. It's unclear, though, to what extent there could be so-called airborne transmission if the virus can linger in the air for some amount of time or drift beyond the immediate area from which somebody coughed or sneezed. That is an open question, and more research into that and other questions about this virus will help airlines uh, better understand the risks. The pandemic has really taken a huge toll on the industry. Andrew, what's your sense of what else the industry will need to do to get back to normal or our new normal? It's going to be difficult to get people comfortable flying again, given the experience that we're all going through. And I think airlines are going to be looking at the pandemic, how it plays out, infection rates. Testing will play a big role in sort of knowing who has the virus and who doesn't and giving people confidence that they are able to fly, giving airlines confidence that they're putting passengers on board without live virus in them so they're not spreading in. And then passengers have to be sure that they are reasonably protected if uh, somehow the virus got onto the aircraft. It's a big problem and it's a big challenge. This has been episode 40 of Inside COVID-19. I'm Alec Hogg. Until Monday, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.